Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. A podcast one production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Well, it's been a while, hasn't it? And, you know, there's a few changes afoot, and I like it because normally we record a bunch of podcasts and then we release them as a new series. But what we're going to do instead is release a podcast every other Thursday starting from today. So you've got plenty to look forward to. We've got some fabulous guests and I can't wait for you to listen. My guest today is Ben Shuri, and he helms, if you don't know, one of Australia's best and most awarded restaurants, Attica. In fact, people will book a plane ticket to Melbourne just to go to Attica. Fly in, eat, indulge and fly out. Can you believe it? Ben's food reflects his rural New Zealand upbringing and increasingly a fascination with Indigenous Australian ingredients. His championing of native ingredients has been highly influential in the Australian dining landscape. And he's made it a mission to learn about the culture and cuisine behind the ingredients directly from Indigenous Australians. And what's been inspirational too is the way that he supported the hospitality industry through the Attica Soup Kitchen, his support of visa workers and his buy-in to the community and their buy-back. This man has a lot to say and believe me, as a foodie, you will love it. In fact, it was so good, we've decided to split it into two parts. So take a listen to part one of my chat with Ben Shuri. You're all right. You've been, I, you've been up all night, haven't you? I have, Gary. It's <laughs> nice to be here, though. Uh, and it's nice to see you have your face, actually. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. If it's, is it that one of those things where you go, he looks normal? No, you know, no. It's just, Brian, I just happy, love being around exhausted. happy people. And uh, it, it's just a bit uplifting, actually. Oh, good. It's not that it's, uh, it's, not that it's all misery where I came from. but uh, So what have you been doing? Um, making soup mostly, yeah, through the night. Okay. Um, and I had to start earlier than that, uh, the long day today. And basically it comes back to stove space. There's not enough stove space at Attica right. currently. So, And some explanation of what you're doing, because I'm following you on Instagram and you're talking about maybe my positive energy. You Inspirational what you're doing at the moment. Thank you, buddy. Because there's a, there's a lot of emotions for me when I'm looking at lots of posts from chefs and particularly you, because we're talking about one of the best restaurants, if not, the best restaurant uh, in Australia, and you've had to pivot this thing into something entirely different to keep everything alive. So explain what's going on. Well, what's going on is um, basic kind of survival instinct um, 
for my company, um, really, uh, for my the livelihoods of my staff. You know, I employ 40 full-time staff and we have about nine casual employees as well. And so, you know, we're carrying a fair load there. And when COVID came, you know, I, I saw everything that I'd worked so hard for my entire career being stripped away from me. I never thought I would own a restaurant. Um, I didn't own Attica until I was 38. Uh, it was the culmination of a lifelong dream. And you know yourself all too well, Gary, you know how difficult it is for chefs to become owners of restaurants, um, hospitality workers in general. And when I did, it was an amazing thing to that I you know that I achieved. And when COVID came, I saw it disappear uh, overnight, pretty much. And um, it was terrifying. But it, I had a day of being terrified. And then the next day, I just thought, you know what? Pull yourself together. You know, you do still have a lot of things going for you. Um, you do have a lot of privilege still. And just get in there and give it a crack and see if you can make it work, you know, by changing. And? It's working. <laughs> it's working. But um, but it is, it's working, but it's been the most challenging part of my life. And that includes going through um, divorce and that includes suffering from depression, um, and it includes several other difficult obstacles that I've come over and overcome in my life. And so can't be probably underwritten about the difficulty of it, but uh, the fact remains that um, no matter how difficult something is, you still need to find a way to survive and overcome and even try to thrive. And um, I didn't want to say it at the beginning. Um, when it first hit, I wanted to I didn't want to say that I, my main goal was to protect the jobs of my staff because I honestly didn't know if I could. And so I didn't sort of say it publicly. I said it to myself, but that's what I've been able to achieve. We haven't had any government assistance and uh, we just went alone with our backs to the wall as if nobody was going to help us. And of course, um, when I say nobody's going to help us, the support from the community of Melbourne, from our friends in hospitality has been completely overwhelming and I feel completely vindicated in moving to Australia and to Melbourne in 2002 from New Zealand. <laughs> um, yeah, what a wonderful community. I'm sure you can relate to this yourself. When you do things in the community beyond your business interests, when you do social work or you do charity work, you don't do it hoping that you'd get something in return. No, at least I don't. And I don't publicize it generally either because I just think it, it's something that you should do and it should kind of go unsaid. And there was a there was a moment at the beginning when I thought, oh, you know, We've, we've, you know, selfishly, I thought we've done a lot for our community and are the community going to be there? Both Kylie Dadden, who's my partner and was operations manager at Attica, had this like moment where we were like, oh. and, but then overwhelmingly, you know, people said to us as we began to do deliveries and we did takeaways, people said to us, well, we know what sort of company you run and we know what you stand for and we know the decisions that you've made through time and we're here for you more than just buying some food, but offering like encouragement and pushing us on, you know, the emotion and the raw energy from the community has just been completely astounding. And I could never really have imagined a time when it would feel like this. So as many bad moments as there have been, and, you know, I want to underscore that this is a terrible thing for the vast majority of people. Um, and this, this tends to push you know, the vulnerable uh, in our community further down. But my silver lining has been that, um, you know, that there, that there has been some amazing lessons learned. We've created new businesses. 
I want to retain those businesses going forward as well because a big section of the community said to us, uh, we've never been able to afford to eat at your restaurant before and we're so pumped and we're so excited about trying your food for the first time, whether or not that was an $8 piece of cheesecake in the bake shop that we ran for the first week or whether or not that was a, a lasagna meal which comes at $30 per person. So that's not something that I will forget um, because I feel energized by those reactions and uh, my heart goes out to those people that supported us. And for me, it would be pretty insincere to turn our backs on them as soon as things improve. You know, I want to retain So switching that. back to the Attica that it was pre-COVID is something that you'll do, but maintaining this yeah. new connection with the community. I like it. Yeah, that's the idea. And switching back to the Attica that was, I don't think even that will look the same. It just feels like time has passed. Even though it's only been nine weeks, it feels like such a long time ago that I used to run a, a fine dining restaurant for 60 people, you know, and I want to do that again. But even now I'm thinking, you know, the whole menu would have to be different and I just, I don't know, I'm just in a different space. And, you know, I'm really hopeful. Um, we face immense challenges, Gary, uh, with the ease of restrictions. And I know to a lot of listeners that'll be a hard thing to understand. But the bottom line for us is that our business only operates successfully on maximum occupancy. So 60 guests, five nights a week. Uh, that's how you pay for the wages of 40 people. And anything beyond that doesn't work from a financial standpoint. Um, the other factors that affect our company are that international tourists would make up probably 10 to 15% of our diners. Yeah. Because for um, those that don't know, and sorry to interrupt sure. you, because there are, I think there are people that are listening that don't know Attica, is that being on the top 50 list of restaurants that you've got to visit in the world makes you an international. So people fly into Melbourne, let's be honest, mm -hmm. just to eat at your restaurant. That's like true. Melbourne just happens to be where they have to fly into to eat at Attica. That's correct. So you've gone from looking after people that are just want that singular experience out of the city and then they fly out to cooking big pots of soup on the stove for <laughs> hospitality workers. It's just a massive pivot then. It, it is. You know, and if you go back to my earlier years in cooking, Gary, which, um, you know, my path to like fine dining and ambitious restaurants is not one that's paved with European Michelin-starred restaurants or, or even restaurants of note, really. Um, you know, I grew up and was trained and learned how to cook in New Zealand. And um, at that time you know, in the 90s, uh, where I was working in small towns, you know, it was buffet work. It was carving ham and carving beef on the buffet. It was um, doing a lot of room service. Uh, it was doing a lot of catering, cooking for weddings and this sort of thing. Uh, so a lot of large production and, you know, fairly low quality cooking, if I'm being honest. Um, it wasn't glamorous at all. <laughs> um, and I sort of very nicely put. <laughs> well, no, and I don't want to be insulting to those people that I cooked with and because I work for some fab fabulous people, some very kind people, and they always saw something in me and enabled me to to fill my creative urge. And I think that's really commendable of, of older head chefs, you know, when you've got some young kid who's 18, 17, 18, as I was, and has some ambition and has some skills to nurture that talent. It's a remarkable mm. thing. So I'm very grateful for that, um, and I don't mean to talk – in a sort of downward way about it. But it, was for, a it was a different place at a different time too. It, it was. We seem to forget that, you know, food, the food scene has moved on very quickly in a very short period of time here in Australia. Yes, this is true, Gary. And a lot of people would look at my CV and would just not even recognize that there was any value 
in any of that work, but there was huge value. Mm. Um, you were often having to create things on the fly and be very adaptable. You know, you worked within very tight budgets and you had not many staff and it was madness as well. <laughs> Absolutely chaos. And so, you know, I'd learned to cook in volume when I was really young and it would only been the last 15 years really since I had run Attica that I, that I wasn't cooking in volume. I was cooking, you know, in small amounts. And so when this hit, like I was the only person in our kitchen who knew how to cook like that, <laughs> which is kind of hilarious. Get the big pots out. Yeah, we'd buy the big pots. We didn't even own the big pots. We borrowed the big pots. Eventually we brought the big pots because, you know, our friends wanted their big pots back. And shout out to Melbourne restaurant community. I mean, thank you so much. I mean, so many people <laughs> have lent us, lended us equipment from mixers to bread provers to ovens to proving racks to <laughs> cake tins. So there's a hilarious ramshackle collection of kitchen equipment from different restaurants at Attica. But cooking in volume, as you know, is just such a different thing than cooking, you know, in an a la carte restaurant or for mm. in a fine dining restaurant. It's just, it's really not even the same occupation. Yeah, production's and a different set of rules. It, it is. You we know? used to have this thing, I don't know if you've ever used it, and with your background that you have, I'm sure you, you would, but you have restaurant chefs and you have banquet chefs or catering chefs. We're not saying one's better than the other, but no. they've got completely different skills. They do. You know, so asking a, a banquet chef to come up with something tiny and beautiful and concentrated in particular flavours is as alien as getting a fine dining chef to produce a meal for 1500 And we've seen people struggle in both environments. Right? Absolutely. You and, pluck and a restaurant chef out and stick them in trying to run a function for a bunch of people that want to eat your food. It's a disaster. No, they can't do it. <laughs> and restaurant chefs typically, not, no, I don't want to stereotype completely, but broadly tend to look down on function chefs a bit. And that's wrong because there's all different ways of doing cooking, you sure. know, and none of them are wrong and sure. and none of them are better than another. But I tell you what, I think, you know, my chefs have a completely renewed respect uh, and admiration for people that might, you know, be cooking at the MCG, for example, or cook for thousands of people yeah. on a regular basis, you know, it really is a valuable skill set. I'm really lucky that I have it because I've had to be there every day to hold the hand and to, to teach um, since it started, you know. And they're getting their, they're finding their feet now after two months. Um, but needing to make um, turn fifty kilos of really great quality beef mince into bolognese is a difficult task when you don't have the right equipment I was as well. Say, when you when you're not set up for like Caulfield or you know the VRC, it's no, really hard. It is. So watching what you're doing on Instagram, and I said before we jumped on air, I don't comment very often, but I really admired what you've been doing. Obviously, the difficulty in pivoting the restaurant, which is one thing then also getting stuck into the soup kitchen. How many times are you doing that a week? Once or twice a week? Once a week. And that, what, what was the inspiration behind that? Tell us about that. Well, the inspiration behind um, Attica Soup Project, which is the soup kitchen, is what happened is everything changed so dramatically in Australia. And when there's radical change and governments have to change as well, there's people that are going to get forgotten about and there's going to be some cracks. And look, the government have got a hard job to do, but unfortunately when they were legislating for people to get benefits or to get JobKeeper, they left out the visa workers. Yeah. And we have uh, something like 20 visa workers on our team, so yep. about half of our labor force. And so if Attica failed, uh, for those 20 people, there's no income for them. Yep. There's no way of getting an income. And for some of them, it's even worse than not even, you can't even get a job because if you're a sponsored visa worker, then, you know, you're sponsored by that establishment that you're working for prior to COVID and then maybe that establishment's closed down. 
can't offer you any any money, but you also cannot legally go and work for anybody else. Yeah. So even if you wanted to get a job, you couldn't. So you're stuck in a no man's land. You can't go home either. No, you can't. So you're go not going home. back to France, or, or you don't want to go home, Germany, because or this is your home. You know as well. Um, it, it's a bit. It didn't feel right to me because as a migrant coming to Australia, I felt very welcome here, and I'm. I feel incredibly lucky to be living in this country. I love this country, but I just felt like we sort of slammed the door in their face. And Danny Vallant, who's a food writer who I know you know, and a friend of mine lives in the neighborhood, we both kind of came to the same conclusion at the same time. We were like, well, what can we do about this problem? I was establishing Attica as this takeaway and pickup model, and we'd start to find our feet and the look like we were going to be okay in the short term. And it's unusual for us to solely focus on the running of the company and no, no other social causes. That's something that's a daily, weekly thing at Attica and some small way. Um, and so we'd had to basically stop doing that because we were going to go broke. And so, but once we'd sort of thought, well, I can kind of see the next few weeks, it doesn't feel right to not be doing anything to help community because I believe the best private companies help community as well. And I don't, and I honestly believe that it's not just um, the responsibility of charities and government to help help out people. If you want to see change in community, then, you know, you need to make that change too. And the best com- companies will always contribute to society, not just take. And so I wanted to go back to that kind of idea and that model. And so this was the sort of, this is the first thing that we'd be able to do. So, you know, we sell, we sell a soup and a portion of the proceeds of that soup enables us to buy food to make a huge amount of soup and give that to people and also to buy groceries. We also accept um, grocery voucher donations from Coles and Woolworths and other places that we can then buy groceries with. So we give soup and bread from Baker Blue. Danny makes fortune cookies with hopeful messages inside them uh, written by her daughters. And we also give a really, really big bag of groceries, all kinds of groceries. And so people can almost survive through the week on that. Um, and that's that's the idea. That's a, an amazing thing that you're doing. When you burrow down into that, what does that look like? Yeah. So how how it is is it's it's specifically open to um, hospitality workers who are uh, unemployed and hospitality visa workers. Basically, um, Danny started a big mailing list early on. There's about two and a half thousand people on that mailing list across the nation, um, and she communicates to that mailing list weekly and on all sorts of you know, issues, um, you know, we work with, for example, we work with a, a really great immigration lawyer company and they are offering them free or legal advice um, in addition to the food. It's about coming to, you know, basically we make this, all this soup, you know, to, I think it's 160 litres uh, this morning. We package it up in the next morning. We give it away with the bread and the cookies and the other groceries. So people who are interested should follow at Danny Vallant and um, register on her mailing list, and that mailing list has all of the information. Then there's a private link that backs onto the Attica website that they are sent. They go on and book, and they come in, the, in a lot of time on Thursday um, mornings. And uh, they come and pick it up. And it's more than just offering people food too, because it people who were fully employed, you know, like they were, and were welcome to this country with really high skills, and you know, there's lots of head chefs, lots of restaurant managers, and that are coming as well from restaurants all across Melbourne. For those people, it's a massive leap of faith to actually say, I need help, you know, to reach out in a hard time and accept soup and accept food. So what one of the other things that we do is just try to offer some support, have a quick conversation. How are you going? 
you know, um, is there anything we could do to assist you from the legal perspective? Or Danny's very good, you know, at knowing where things are and maybe there'll be a law change or, you know, everybody came to the soup kitchen last week was a bit more optimistic because of the reopening um, of restaurants potentially. For most of them, I think coming is, you know, there's two things, getting some food, but also just knowing that people care. And I think they're very inspired by all of the donations from people in our community because I really believe that all Australians would care about this issue if they knew that it was happening. And so we've received huge donations from of grocery vouchers from, from people and we'll be able to pass that on and tell these people who are coming to the soup kitchen, hey, this community cares about you. And they also say, this is the Australia that we believe in and that we think with, this is why we came because this is the country that we came for. You know? Yeah. it's It's been interesting because even I know staff myself, people myself that have refused to sign up for JobKeeper because it's like, nah, I've worked hard all my life. Mm. You know, it's, um, you know, they're very proud yep. um, and they'll do everything they can not to, you know, be a drain on anybody. It's yeah. a kind of, you know, typical hospitalitarian, you know. It they're, is. They're fiercely independent. So it has been a big leap of faith and lots of other people out there are doing the same thing, but it's just really lovely to see. And it's like um, a community soup kitchen that they act as um, like well-being centres. It's mm. You can track people, trace people. You know, where's John? I haven't seen him for a couple of weeks kind of thing. It's really, it's amazing stuff you're doing. Because people, I think, don't realise too that this is going to be going on for a while. We're kind of going up from the dip, but we don't know what hospitality is going to look like going forward. So it's kind of stay tuned, get involved, jump on your Instagram. Um, Danny Valant obviously is a good one. And just, you know, see what's happening. If you're interested in your, your close to Attica and you want to be part of the community, then I'd say, you know, get more involved. But can we talk about happier times? Yeah. Just for a moment, yeah. Just so we're not glad because I want to send. Can if I, you're going to leave qualify, the studio, can I qualify happier times um, <laughs> just by saying though different times that my attitude towards this time is not particularly different than any other time. This is still for me a time to live and to try to enjoy, mm. and I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think some people are feeling bad about trying to have have an enjoyable time when it's a hard time more broadly in the community. You know, I'd, I'd really disagree with that. You know, if 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 you don't live this viscerally and try to experience it and try to get the best out of it, life's going to pass you by. Mm. And I, I'm not interested in that. You know, like I, you know, I just want to be proactive and positive. And that's kind of what I, what I would lead with every day, you know, almost to the point that we should drive people nuts probably. <laughs> but that's what makes you Ben Shuri, one of the most <laughs> successful restaurateurs in the country, right? Oh, You're, thank it's, you. well, it's get up and go, isn't it? And it, Yeah, it's energy. Uh, it's energy, yeah. right? And, and that, it's, it's trying to like not mess stuff up. You know, like it, it, it's it just like every day, like do the best you can, but don't destroy people yeah. in the process. You know, I was watching you having fun on Instagram. You're doing something crazy with apples with the with the guys in your team. Yeah, if anybody wants to have a look, I go, what is he doing? But you're having fun. Yeah, that's right. It's not all like <laughs> it, it's not all darkness. You know, like it it, it is there. There needs to be tones. You know, and um, and there needs to be an ebb and flow. And I think also with with Instagram, you know, this is probably the first time that I've really had to embrace it. And I, you know, I've wanted to embrace it because for two reasons, I wanted to, I want to speak to my community and I want to be a positive influence, you know, and, um, I want to put good stuff out there. And sometimes, you know, I might share like a crazy story about the first year of, or second year of culinary school, but you can't take that every day, you know? So sometimes you just need to see chefs being ridiculous and dancing with, rope lights all over them to a Beastie Boys tune. <laughs> Which was very good. I like cheered me up anyway. <laughs> can we you. talk about that um, that experience at culinary school? Yeah, yeah. So Tell um, us about it. Okay, so <laughs> it was the second year and I was in the Waikato in New Zealand and the, the city of Hamilton, 2005. 
And I don't come from a money background. I come from you know a loving home. I have plenty of privilege. Don't get me wrong, Gary. I'm a straight white uh, man. Um, but my parents didn't have any money. Um, but I had an incredibly wealthy childhood uh, around the table and just in family spirit. I left home at 16 to be a chef. That was my lifelong dream. It was all I wanted to do from the age of five. I applied to the best chef school in the country two years before I, you know, I was eligible, and they accepted me at 16. So I left home, a new city, two and a half hours away from my family, which was seemed like a you know international flight um, to a New Zealander. The first year I was in student village, so in student accommodation. In the second year, um, I was living in a flat, and um, you know, I was experiencing all the things that young people experience when they leave home, um, having to manage, you know, my, my finances and alcohol and, uh, relationships and all kinds of different things. <laughs> turning your, d- turning your washing all the same color. Exactly. You know, precisely. Yeah. Blue everything. Yeah. Yeah. Fluff on everything. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I'd taken a student loan because my parents didn't have the money to pay for my education and, and that was totally fine with me. You know, it was my, my parents are incredibly hardworking. So I'd taken the student loan and that was how I was, that was how I was getting through college. And I was also working. I was a very insecure young man. And I, you know, I've probably s- struggled with insecurity in some way, not so much insecurity, but maybe not believing in myself enough, um, my whole life. And I had this year where just all of this crazy stuff happened, you know, um, I was working at this nightclub, um, which was kind of the only job that I could get. And we used to make New Zealand's biggest nachos there. That was its claim to fame. Basically, you know, a salamander is a commercial grill um, for melting cheese and whatnot. And it's probably about 35, 40 centimetres tall. So you build the nachos a bit taller than that and then scrunch them down and then put them under the grill. So my basic jobs at this place was to make this sort of chili con carne mixture and then just to build these nachos, also to cook uh, lots and lots of fries that we would feed to the drunk people that were queuing outside to get into the nightclub because the owner told me that that would make them drink more alcohol, which probably did. And this place was pumping, absolutely heaving with students. It was a big student town, Hamilton. And I also was the glassy, so that, that means that I'd go around the nightclub gathering all the glasses, putting them on trays and putting them in the dishwasher. And the coolest and most powerful people in, in the place were the bar people. And I wasn't one of those. I was the cook. So... I had to basically clean up as well. So one night, anyway, you're you, painting a wonderful picture. Oh, by it's the way. just and just so you know, I was a glass collector. Well, you were at a too. Camp, yeah, <laughs> when I was like 14, 15, and you just, I just went, oh, I just had a shudder, and I had to change all the beer lines. Oh my and all god, that. And the my, kegs? Were you, were uh, yeah, you I did the all kegs? the kegs change because they go, Gary, go change the keg on whatever. And we, my one of my other jobs, I don't know if I just say this on air. I mean, nobody, no, I don't know anybody from that era. I had to water down all of the um, optics. <laughs> You know, the uh, cordials. Yeah. This, this is a quality oh, operator, right? Yeah. And every spirit was the same spirit. So gin, uh, vodka was just, didn't matter what bottle it was because this place was packed. Wow. And because they just get drunk and they just go, ah, give me a, I wasn't serving. They don't even know what they're drinking. They don't know what they're drinking. And I just remember that. I go, oh my goodness. I used to do that. I was I was complicit in. Uh, well, you were just given your orders though, as a 15 year old yeah i mean you don't question that you know? did you <laughs> ever did you ever go on the long wait did you ever have to go and get the long wait no i never did actually i remember no. i i still have the scar I, I used to have to sort through the bottles in the morning okay and put them in respective crates because they used to get 
obviously it was a well-run bar obviously they made a bit of money but i i remember putting my hand in a in the glass bin and just off to hospital that was right got 10 stitches or something Goodness like me. that that's yeah that's horrible no human resources back then. No. No no claim to anything. It was just get yourself off to hospital and get yourself back, I oh think. My goodness. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Not at all. Because you just you just dragged me back in time then. I'm not sure if I want that memory. It's just it's kind of <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of scary confronting those memories actually. But yeah. you know So it, sorry, you were? So yeah, so it was a busy <laughs> night. Um I was making nachos, I was cooking fries, and somebody decided that they would vomit all over the pool table, like really vomit. Like a big, powerful vomit all over the pool table and it was my job unfortunately to clean that up so i went over there with um a dustpan and a broom and whatever else i took i can't remember and i started to clean up and as i started to clean up the people around me felt pity for me and threw gold coins into the vomit onto the pool table <laughs> into the vomit so i swept it all up um and cleaned it up and i took all of the spew out the back to where you wash the bins out, and I and I rinsed it all off, and there was about um, thirty odd dollars uh, in coins, um, and I was like so grateful for that money, you know, like it was just because I was just living, you know, day to day, and um, you know, I I wrote about being down to fifty cents on weekends and not having any food, and knowing kind of what it felt like to be hungry, and going to the supermarket and getting the free bread roll and the free sample and making a sandwich and buying lots of two minute noodles and. Baked beans were very cheap back then, fortunately. All these sorts of crazy things happened. Um, I stupidly, well, not stupidly, you know, I was a kid, but I had a relationship with uh, with a young woman who it turned out that she had uh, a boyfriend, which I did not know about. And after that ended, she told him he turned out to be associated with the Mongol mob gang, which is one of the most notorious gangs in New Zealand. They came looking for me uh, with a hammer, um, and I know this because my flatmate told me, and I happened to be away that weekend. Thank God, and um, and and I, came, I arrived to a pale faced, white faced flatmate who said three mongrel mob members came to look for you, and they were carrying a hammer, and they were asking about you in relation to this young woman, and I was like, oh my God, and I was so so scared. I was so scared. You can't. You can't, I couldn't even ex describe how terrified I was. I was petrified and I basically hid for three or four months until the problem went away. And the problem went away by the same thing actually happened to somebody else. Thank goodness. I know. And then the heat was off me. But it was, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I was so young and so stupid that I didn't even go to the police and I didn't tell my family and I didn't even tell friends. And I just like, and they were looking for me, like they would wait outside the training institution asking my name and stuff. It was pretty intense. And but um, different times back then, maybe there's more support, more awareness, more whatever. I think so. But I mean, also I come from the back country as well. And, you know, you don't you just dealt with, you it. have a problem, you don't put your hand up and it's, it's completely wrong. It took me a long time to learn that, you know, after I, well, before I'd posted, you know, what I did about that story on Instagram, I was able to have a conversation with my children about those subjects because I knew that they would read it. And, um, you know, and it was an opportunity to talk about all of those issues at, that you face as a young person and how you might deal with them better than dad did, you know, yeah. that how it's never wrong to want to talk to somebody about it and to reach out for help yeah. um, if you're in a tricky situation. But with exuberance of youth comes the kind of ignorance as well. It's Absolutely. only as you get older, you start to realize 
you know, and I certainly know with my own daughter, she's getting older. Some things you go, oh, if only she had the benefit of my 53 years of experience. She doesn't want to listen, of course, but... No. I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. So you grew up on a farm, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So rural North Taranaki, North Island of New Zealand, um, sheep and cattle farm. Food was always like a constant comfort and we didn't, like we said, didn't have a lot of money, but we were quite wealthy in food because we, you know, we had this farm and we had this vegetable garden that my mother tended and there was a lot of wild food as well and dad hunted and we ate wild shellfish from the coast and you now there were wild grapes and berries and edible plants that we knew of in that area and that we utilized whenever they were in season. And it wasn't, it was more of, well, it was a sustenance thing for one, but it was also to add variety to your diet as well um, because they were delicious. And so that was just, well, I thought that was normal life, you know, so that was kind of how everybody lived as a kid. I didn't think that we were this bunch of weirdos, you know. Um, why, why, we, why do you say weirdos? Well, because when, because when I got older and even when I started cooking with wild foods, you know, a lot of people would question in the early years of Attica, question the validity of that, you know, say, well, why do you want to use these things? You know, like they weren't fashionable at the time and they weren't mm. they weren't trendy. Can you um, think of an example that you can connect back to, you know, your, your childhood? At Attica? Yeah. Or like where I used? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's difficult because, we're, you know, we're in a different country with a different set of ingredients, particularly endemic ingredients. But, I mean... When I was a child, you know, I was obsessed with the Maori, New Zealand Maori method of hungi, which is cooking in an earth oven. You dig a pit, you light a fire above it with rocks on the fire and it all caves into the pit. And eventually you've got, through a process, um, but you've eventually got these very, very hard, hot, uh, very, very hot rocks. And you lay flax, which is a broadleaf tough plant on the top of the rocks and then lay food like kumara, which is a sweet potato, potatoes and pork. I put cabbages and all kinds of things in there. And then you cover the whole thing with earth, protected, and uh, you leave it for about, I leave it for about 10 hours, and it steams. So you have a few flavors going on in there. You, you have the flavor of the earth, um, which is a wonderful conductor of heat. So it cooks everything very evenly. Then you have, you know, you have the sort of smokiness of the fire, and then everything's very soft and very delicious. And I just like to uncover it, dig it up, if you like, and then just eat it straight from the pit. That's my dream way of eating it with my hands. That was something that was taught to us by local iwi, by the community that we lived in. And that was something that we celebrated birthdays uh, with and school fates and the like. And it was something that I had when I went to a marae, which is a traditional meeting place. So that was something I held dear because I was always looking for identity Mm -hmm. as a child, you know, because I come from the bottom of the world, if you like, and in nobody's particularly interested in us. You're and describing a dream to many foodies here. I mean, even Dave's just, he's just leaned back. He's crossed his arms and he's, yeah, going, isn't that nice? Too and you that, thought it was weird back then, right? Well, no, I didn't think it was weird. I thought it was, I thought it was normal. Um, until it was I realized, only later. It was, yeah, until thought, it was, oh, that was I left that area. Not normal. 
It wasn't normal at all. Yeah. Uh, kind of until I went. We were to high cooking school. nachos under a grill. Exactly, and I was like, "This is the <laughs> new normal, drunk right?" Chips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was like, I was also like, it was a certain level of frustration um, that I felt as a young cook because I was trying to identify things that spoke of my country in a culinary sense. And particularly when I came to Australia, I was, you know, in two thousand two, I was desperate to discover what it meant to be an Australian cook, and it just meant so many different things depending kind of weird come from, you know, because we're almost all migrants unless we're First Nations here. Mm. I hadn't been able to like relate to, you know, the fancy restaurants in 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 Europe because it was so far away. I'd never been there. And the ingredients didn't make sense to me because they were different ingredients and I couldn't get them in New Zealand. And so I related to like what was local, you know, what was in New Zealand and, and, and also to Australian cooks, um, people like Maggie Beer and Stephanie Alexander and Neil Perry, um, Chong Lu, Tetsuya, like as a as a young cook looking across the ditch from New Zealand, those were the people. I was like, oh, that, that seems like there's something there, you know. So when I came out, I tried to discover, you know, what that something was to me, and it really took a long time. And and I, but I, I felt a sense of urgency around it, and I felt I felt a high level of frustration, and I couldn't understand why indigenous ingredients weren't being utilised and weren't being really acknowledged in Australia. And when I started to work with them, with wild foods in particular, before I even knew about them, I started to work with them, before I even realized that King George Whiting is an indigenous fish, you know. Before, you know, when I picked over from the bay for the first time, probably in 2003, I didn't realize that it was indigenous, you know. Yeah, I went Explain up, that for the listener. Well, so, you know, I tried to create this dish that was this visceral, visceral memory of my childhood of nearly drowning, um, which is quite a dramatic uh, thought right now, right? Like, I mean, yeah, you come to that restaurant where the chef creates a dish where it feels like you're drowning. Yeah. No wonder people weren't lining up the door in the, <laughs> in the first six years, Gary. Um, so I did do that. I mean, I feel like that's just so ridiculous to say it, but I did create this dish where I tried to, like, I tried to recreate the the sensation or the taste of having, you know, salt water stuffed up your nose and your face and your mouth. Um, but it is true that I nearly drowned several times, but one in particular, I was harvesting mussels off the coast when my father saved me. And so in trying to create something that spoke of myself and of where I'd come from, when it came to the conception of this dish, there weren't the ingredients available at the time. There weren't seaweed, it wasn't seaweed available and there wasn't, and weren't coastal plants available through the market or through suppliers. And so I actually reconnected with my with my youth in that moment, needing to go to the coast. First, I just went to the coast to see if there was anything there, like total naive. I had no idea. I didn't know the Australian coastline. And I just went there in like 2003 and started looking. And it was this really stormy day. And the, the, the bay was absolutely churning just off Brighton there, right? Like churning mm. like, it, you know, it's never that violent. It was particularly violent. I was standing there thinking... It was the middle of winter. I'm standing there thinking, I don't have a wetsuit. I'm going to have to go in this damn cold water. And there was this little boat ramp and the waves were thrashing on it. And I was just watching and watching. And then all of a sudden, this wave spat out this piece of bright green seaweed onto the, onto the boat ramp. And I sprinted down and grabbed it like it was this precious thing. And that was kind of like the light bulb moment. Like there's something there. You know, I didn't know what that was. And I took that seaweed, researched it realized that you could eat it you can eat most seaweeds and that was probably like that really just important strong early moment and everything else led from there the connection to the coastal plants in the area of the sand belt which are important to this part of the world you know things like gray saltbush atropic cinerea pig face and and so on and so forth 
they started to become the food that I that I needed on a daily basis at Attica. They were giving my, me my identity and they were allowing me to make different food and um, not better food. Like I've never made better food than other people. I've just made food that's personal to me. Just to try and make sense of how you got there, when you came to Australia, you, did, you said you didn't work in any great restaurants, but you did work in some great restaurants. I did. For some great chefs too. No, and it wasn't, I mean, and that's not true about New Zealand either because I actually worked in a, in, a, in a restaurant in Wellington. It was just, you know, off the charts good. It was called the Roxburgh Bistro and the chef was Mark Limaker, hmm. now runs Ortega Fish Shack in Wellington. He's a true restaurant professional and I learned most of what I knew up to that point from him. He was the person that set the record straight for me and, you know, he wasn't a big one on flourishes, you know, or fluff. So he would just call bullshit on like anything that wasn't meaningful on a dish. And I still probably carry that with me to this day. You know, if I had that, is it actually adding anything to the dish or is it just vanity to add it? And he would always say, no, don't do it. When I came to Australia, I worked, um, you know, at Lux initially as a pastry chef. That restaurant went broke. I rocked up, you know, after a holiday to find that my key didn't fit in the door anymore security guard on the other side asking me what I wanted. I said, I wanted my knives. <laughs> and my shoes, please. Yes, please. Not me the knives and shoes. Exactly. That was about all there was. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have minded all of my wages and holiday pay as well, but that that's another helped. story. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks Australian government for coming to my rescue. Um, <laughs> so that was like a, I, you know, I was kind of unemployed for a month there, but that was a critical lesson actually. You know, I learned more from working in a restaurant that went broke than working at multiple other successful restaurants because I learned that that was something that I never wanted to be a part of again because I felt culpable as well. I felt partially responsible. I was a pastry chef and I had no culpability. I understand that now as a restaurant owner, but I felt responsible and it really pushed me down. After that, I, I went and worked at Circa and initially for Michael Lambie and then uh, for Andrew McConnell, you know, Andrew was an, as another mentor who I learned a significant amount from. I worked with a great gang of people there from Philippa Sibley Cook to David Moyle to Danny Southern, who helped me in the soup kitchen this morning, Matt Wilkinson, um, Josh Murphy, the list goes on. All amazing people and people yeah. you want to be surrounded by back then, but now too. Yeah, right? absolutely. Real good people. You know, and Andrew has <laughs> always had that unique kind of gift about bringing those good people together as he does now in his restaurants, you know, across Melbourne. Because making sense of where, where you've ended up, you had a tie obsession as well, did you not? Yes, I did. And that had sort of kicked in at, at Lux. Well, what, the reason why I came to Australia was because I developed this tie obsession in New Zealand. And there wasn't um, any good Thai food in New Zealand at the time. So I studied Thai food over cookbooks by buying books. I think I bought 40 books on the subject. I'm quite obsessive, as you might be, uh, <laughs> you might be able to detect. Um, and I go real deep into things. So I went real deep into Thai food because it really spoke to me, you know, uh, with its complexity. And mm. I feel like it was an overlooked cuisine back then. People didn't understand it very well. It was well. just takeaway. It was, you know, I didn't. I don't mean my, that badly, but it's no, just, no, that, that's, how, just, that's, that's how it's just was. green curry. No, right? it's, it's one of the world's yeah. greatest and most complex cuisines, which you know. And so I wanted to study that, and I, I came to Australia because I'd I'd been to David Thompson's restaurant in Sydney uh, on a honeymoon, and I thought, wow, this is just this just set my world on fire. It just blew my mind. His cooking, I was like, man, he's just. But he's. But also, what I learned too is he was so far above me at that point. Like, I had no idea what I was doing, and he was just the master. So I, I stupidly thought, oh, because I'd been to Sydney and eaten this great Thai food, I'll come to Melbourne. 
just randomly. And, and I came to Melbourne and there was nothing happening here with Thai food. And so I continued my obsession, my study. I ended up going to London and staging at um, David Thompson's restaurant Nam for six weeks, which was hugely, you know, inspirational. I learned heaps. You know, I sort of carried that back um, with me to Australia, and w- which had most of the ingredients, and um, keep practicing. But at some point, and it was probably in that first year at Attica when I was actually making a menu, which was sort of part my European training because we've all had that training, whether or not we went to Europe or not. We've learned how to cook French food in school, and this passion for Thai. I had so much respect for Thai food that I didn't want to fuse it with the European food that I had less respect for. I just couldn't do it. And also creatively, I couldn't improve on traditional Thai food and I I didn't want to bastardize it. So I I moved away from it. But not completely though. It does uh, in a small way that underlies there. And it it really, rotchart is this phrase that the Thais use, which means, you know, basically the harmony or the balance of everything, you know, the sweet, the salty, the spicy, the sour. And that is something that I learned from Thai cooking, which I must acknowledge, and something that I apply to my cooking to this day. Did Dave, David Thompson set those high standards? Yeah. I don't know him. I didn't never worked for him, but knowing of him and occasional conversations, those standards are so high. Yeah, they are I don't so think painfully anybody, high. I don't think anybody can. And it makes oh. you feel guilty. I feel guilty every time I cook Thai food. Yes. Because somewhere there's David Thompson going, and that's exactly how he, how, how he deals with you too. Like he wouldn't chastise me in the way that other people would chastise me by yelling or abusing me. Um, you know, he would chastise me by saying, oh, it's really not to my standard. Mm. And that would just cut me because I admired him so much, you know. It was worse, much worse. Um, <laughs> Mark Limaker chastised me that same way, you know. He just like... If he just was standard. unimpressed. Yeah, if, if that's the best you can do, you know, that's I really it. can't help you, you know. And and I, uh, that was more, much more effective on me and it really helped me probably become the manager that I would eventually become. Yeah, so Thai food uh, wasn't happening in Melbourne. Went to Circa, had a, a great two years there with my now ex-wife. We'd had a, a infant son, Kobe. Uh, he was born while I was at circa and he was six months old and I needed to support my wife and child while earning, you know, a relatively small sum of money uh, as a junior sous chef. The writing was on the wall at 27. I had to take a head chef job. There was an advert in the paper, two adverts in the paper. One was for um, cooking Parmigianas at a pub over in Richmond. I applied for that job. I'd got it. At the same time, um, I'd always, I'd lived in Elstonwick and Next door to Alstonwick is, of course, Ripon Lee. There was this restaurant called Attica in that neighborhood. It was always dead, but for me, there was something about the site and about how it looked that appealed to me. And I always thought, it, I've said it often, it had good bones, but no soul. And I was, imagine if I was head chef there, I'd walk past it with my dog. Imagine if I could be head chef there, right? I literally thought this and like said this to myself. And then one day the advert, was in the paper at around the same time as the advert for the um, the pub job for the head chef position at this place called Attica, which, just to absolutely clarify for everybody, nobody had heard of. Um, it was a one-and-a-half-year-old restaurant that had, was failing epically. And I replied to the advert. They actually um, took about eight days to respond to my interview. So, so I was you, like, oh, so I thought I had to go. deferring the pub for as long as possible. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, you know, oh, I'm so glad I didn't go to the pub. Um, so so glad. Not that there's anything wrong with pub cooking, but my heart wasn't in it, and it was purely 
would have been the first time in my career that I took a job purely for money. And I'd never, ever done that. I still haven't done that. And I just felt like, um, oh, so sad about it. You know, I felt really sad about it. Anyway, eventually they got back and said that I had the job and had about a month between Attica and um, Circa. So I stayed, you know, I worked you know, full-time hours at Circa and I stayed up like into the wee hours of the morning every night dreaming up this first menu that I was going to be doing, which was, you know, it was really like a culmination of all of the influences and chefs that I'd worked worked for, David Thompson to Andrew McConnell to Mark Limica and others. And um, I knew that that what they tried at Attica before had failed and it was probably playing it too safe. It had been a Middle Eastern restaurant and it had been, you know, a little bit successful at the start, you know, Mm. but then that success went away and then it was a French bistro and none of, neither of those things had worked. And I just felt like it had to be something different. And I, I am not a good person at replicating other people's dishes. I'm like, I'm not like technically proficient like that. If you asked me to, you know, make a classic dish for you. It was. It would never be as it should be, probably completely. So I just didn't feel like I could bang those classics out. You know, so I wanted to do something new. Fortunately, the owner didn't know anything about restaurants and enabled that. <laughs> um, and we started, and uh, it was absolute madness. Just so hectic, such an intense time of my life. Um, the most visceral cooking and living that I think I've done. I was working consistently in excess of 100 hours a week. And I should note that COVID brought me back to that. So that's what I'm working like now. And that's how it's felt for much of this eight weeks. It's brought me back to those first two, three years at Attica. I worked my fingers um, until they bled, literally. I had to go to the doctor because they were bleeding on the nails so badly, like on both hands, because I would scrub the dishes. There was two of us in the kitchen We'd cook. We only had enough pots and pans for one table. We'd cook for the table, then scrub the dishes in the sink right next to the stove and then start cooking again. And after um, six months, it started to bleed under the nails. And so I went to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, it's, it's pretty simple. You just need to need to take um, three months off cooking or doing that. And I said, mate, three months? I can't even take three hours off. Like it felt like a leap to even be at the doctor. You know, that's how intense it was. What, um, what gives you the drive to do that? I I, I don't want to. Well, I think I you know just to interject on that thought. At the older part of me now thinks what appalling behaviour, like by me, you know, like um, and I hope. Well, not if young, you love it. Not no, if, not if, if you love if it, it. But I hope, I just hope that young chefs listening out there don't think that that is the only way to achieve success, um, because it's dangerous. But what drives me particularly, it's just an internal thing, you know. I was probably just so scared to fail and I'd seen it. There's been examples of talented young people who had come through, who had worked at the wrong place, which had gone broke and they never recovered. You know, the media might not give you a second chance or the public have moved on. You've got that stigma attached to your name your whole life. I'd been through that situation with Lux, even though it wasn't my restaurant. And I was just like to hell with failing. You know, like I will do anything, anything necessary to succeed. So when uh, you walked out of the, the, the doctor's surgery. Straight back to the kitchen. On the walk back, what are you thinking? I'm just thinking that's a ridiculous suggestion. Yeah, I'm just thinking there's no merit in that, that he doesn't understand my reality. 
And my reality was different, you know, like, you know, my reality was like, you know, when I broke my hand, you know, maybe three years later, I had a spiral fracture in my hand. I asked the surgeon to put a titanium plate and pins in it so I could return to work the day after the surgery. That was the reason why I've got a plate in my hands is because I knew that I could return to the job. I could have not had that surgery and my hand would have healed, but I chose to have the surgery so I could return to work, which is pretty messed up. <laughs> it's not, I mean, and I don't, I, I'm really not telling you these stories to, to like, to celebrate them, even I'm laughing at it, at the ridiculousness of it. it it's hundred, and I, and I'm not also saying it to be a martyr for anybody to feel sorry for me, like a hundred percent my decision. I own that, you know, but that was just necessary because it was going to, like if I took six weeks off to let my hand heal and I only had two other people working alongside me, well, it was definitely gone. And it was on a knife's edge. I think that's probably worth qualifying financially. The company, the business was completely on a knife's edge. It was in a lot of debt before I arrived, about 150000 which is a lot of debt for a, for a small, incredibly quiet restaurant. We did multiple nights where we did no customers or we did two customers. On the very first service of my tenure of Attica, it was two customers and we'd cooked for 30 hours to get to there. Uh, we were really, really in the weeds as well. And maybe the next night it was four and then eight and then maybe on Saturday it was 10 or 12 and really just impossible numbers to sustain a business. It, it was just manic and crazy. I can't say I'm like I'm particularly proud of that time or fond of it. It feels like it was unavoidable. I think I would be a different person if I didn't go through it. Uh, I, I don't think I would have survived COVID if I hadn't gone through it. That's actually a fact. That was part one of my chat with Ben Shuri. So much to take on board, wasn't there? And if you want to hear more, then part two is only a click away. Take a listen. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.